You're listening to The Grind, well-caffeinated conversations with disc golfers who are passionate about improving their games and helping others to do the same. Welcome to episode 23 of The Grind, a disc golf podcast. I'm Josiah, and with me, my good buddy David, we're going to talk some disc golf. How's it going, guys? We've got a great episode lined up for you this week. We've got a pro tip from Hannah Macbeth. We're going to talk about how do you improve your game by watching the pros play? And we're going to review the Discraft Heat. But first, David, as always, what are you sipping on? How was your disc golf week? Oh, man, we're sipping on the Espresso Blend from All Press Coffee in New Zealand. Dude, uh, we're getting international. We had <laughs> uh, from Paris, France last week and New Zealand this week. Is that right? Yeah. Actually, uh, this is thanks to uh, one of the baristas at Kiln, uh, her favorite coffee shop. She lived in New Zealand for a while, and this was her favorite coffee shop that she ordered some coffee from. I'm jealous. And I think if I would live anywhere but here, I think it'd be New Zealand. I think Lord of the Rings ruined me for any other destination country. <laughs> I mean, Iceland's pretty cool, too, but New Zealand's on my bucket list. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, but yeah, she kindly shared this with us. Uh, it's kind of a... It gives you kind of a classic cup. So this is their espresso blend. Typically an espresso blend traditionally was more on the darker end. Uh, a lot of the more modern stuff, you're seeing a lot more medium roast and a lot more light roast depending on the style of coffee. This definitely lands in that medium uh, roast range. And they actually have, it's a blend of four different coffees. It's a Guatemala, uh, Brazil, Colombia, and then also a fourth component of Sumatra. Um, which Sumatra isn't seen a ton uh, uh, that I've seen in espresso, but the other three are very common. Um, but man, why, why do um, espresso blends tend to favor like Central and South America and blends? Because it seems like when I say espresso blends, if you have a shop who has an espresso roast, they tend to tend to be a blend, and it seems like those are typical countries you hear. Yeah, it really de- depends on what your philosophy is, because I think the traditional uh espresso blend would give you kind of that chocolatey nutty components um gives you some complexity but also very simple notes to hit um and that's what a lot of people are looking for and hoping for in their espresso and so i know like us at kiln we've built that although we're roasting on the lighter end for our espresso um, we still built it to bring out those traditional flavor notes so we're not getting wild there are some coffee roasters that love to get wild with their espresso blend and they'll toss in, I know Cat and Cloud was using, uh, I think their blend for a while was Brazil, Guatemala and uh, Ethiopia Guji Natural that we've tried before on the podcast. Yeah, so, I think that I've had their espresso blend from a different coffee shop in town and I yeah. feel like it was pretty like pretty fruity on the head. It was, yep. like especially in a milk drink, it's kind of, it's kind of it's fun and wild, um, but it's different than you'd expect. Yeah, so I think for the for the coffee drinker that's looking for something fun and different, it's great. It's a great experience to have that on espresso. Uh, but for the average person that's just wanting their cup of coffee with whether it's vanilla syrup or just with the milk, whatever it might be, um, that traditional approach is definitely the most approachable for the greater scheme of people. Uh, I guess the greater demographic, and so that tends to be where a lot of roasters lean. Uh, especially in smaller communities. If it, when you're in larger communities like Santa Cruz where Cat and Cloud is or bigger cities, um, you can get pretty experimental because you're really just trying to hit certain niches of people. So, Yeah, that makes total sense. One thing I think I didn't know early on in life was there was no such thing as an espresso bean. <laughs> you know, like 
everybody's like, oh, chocolate covered espresso beans. And it's like, it's a coffee bean. Yep. <laughs> like, I don't think I knew that. That's one of the, it, there's so many things in coffee that uh, words that we use that we just, uh, we have these assumptions in our culture. And I mean, I found myself early on as a barista, 10 years back when somebody's talking to me about espresso and coffee. And I legitimately had a conversation with somebody like I, I believed and knew espresso beans as being their own separate beans. I didn't know <laughs> either way. So I didn't realize that I was perpetuating that bad knowledge and bad information by saying that, yes, there is a difference between espresso beans and coffee beans, even though I, I didn't know. <laughs> I just was told that. And so right. I just assumed. Well, when you someone has a roaster or a shop has an espresso roast, espresso blend, like we're having this on pour over. You did this with the V60? Did it with the V60, yep. The Hario V60 is one of the classic, either at a craft coffee shop or a home brewer, pour over dripper. So um, you can use espresso beans, quote unquote, or espresso roast or blend as pour over. And I enjoy it. If you want like a very nice, like balanced cup, typically at a, at a craft coffee shop, that's a good option. Um you're going to have a little less interest in terms of getting that single origin and you can kind of really dial in specific tasting notes. Instead, you're going to have something that's just going to be really approachable, easy to drink, consistent. So I do really enjoy this cup. It The first sip, I th- had a little bit more bitterness than I expected, but once I started drinking it, I was like, this is good. This is tasty, easy to drink. Definitely got the chocolatey and nutty notes there. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely going back to that, that classic cup. If you're looking for something for every, the whole family to enjoy over the holidays, this is something that's very approachable for everyone. Um, the person that's liking the like more of a um, extreme lighter roast coffee might be a little hesitant for it, but still can appreciate the fact that it's not super dark. Um, so it's just very approachable for just everybody all around. Yeah, kind of going back to espresso, all espresso means is it's a brewing method. You're brewing it on an espresso machine. When people label espresso blend on their bags, um, all that means is that that's what they, that's the coffee that they use on their espresso machine. So other than that, it has no other meaning. And so really you can do with them whatever you want. <laughs> There's a lot more freedom than you might expect. Um, well, cool. That's educational for me as well. Uh, and a good cup of coffee and just a miracle of the modern world. You know, you have this coffee for farms probably from four different countries all shipped and roasted in new zealand and then we're enjoying it in colorado today <laughs> that's pretty wild it's, to think about it's wild <laughs> uh that, that coffee has traveled as far as i probably have in my entire life um but yeah uh how was your disc golf week disc golf week was good man um i got an ace this week yeah uh, that, that's <laughs> awesome i was sad i wasn't there because it i feel like it's an ace i would never have expected just because of the the shot is a conservative play yep the only possible way that I could have gotten it is a skip shot directly forward in the way that it hit on the ground. It just went straight and into yeah, I the got basket. That's nice straight skip. And that's that's awesome. Yeah. So this is the infamous Watson hole ten, double mando hole. It's really should probably be a backhand straight shot. Mm-hmm. It's the most straightforward shot. But uh, David throws, of course, a forehand. A forehand. So, I, so I don't miss the Mandos. And usually that gives you like a 25-foot putt on the right-hand side, right? Usually, yeah, between 25 to 35 foot on the right side, yeah. Yeah, but you got nice straight skip, had some witnesses. Yep, 
got it's fun. four witnesses got signed, <laughs> so we're good to go. Yeah, so um, that's a Sexton Firebird, right? Sexton Firebird, yep. Uh, I guess um, there's something to it. It's, I, I think <laughs> I think 80 to 90% of my aces have been Firebird. So <laughs> yeah, David just moved into a new category of disc golf for the one who can't remember how many aces he has. <laughs> and I'm jealous of that. I'm working on it. I'm jealous of that. <laughs> uh, but it was a good week overall. I feel like, again, kind of going through a season of just tinkering and working on a lot of things. We've talked about trying to, just I and I are both kind of working on trying to build distance with the backhand. Um, definitely throwing to where my arm gets sore oftentimes in the field. Um, today, the first time felt like I threw to the point to where it was kind of a bad soreness. I feel like I was making some, um, very poor choices mechanically that was kind of impacting some muscles that I probably shouldn't have been yanking on. Um, but yet we did the same thing yesterday and actually my arm is feeling, it's feeling sore but it is that good type of soreness that it feels like I use the right muscles and I'm just kind of building that arm strength up. And so, uh, yeah, I feel like the tinkering, I'm feeling good about things, but oftentimes you feel great for a week. And then, so I'm definitely in that point of feeling like, okay, I feel like this was a productive week as far as what I'm wanting to tinker on and different shots, not just distance, but I'm definitely working on different shots with my Berg, um, and whatnot, but it's been a blast. Definitely haven't been focused on scoring lately. It's interesting as we've gone throughout the podcast, going from I all I cared about was scoring. All I cared about was getting the best score on a course. And now I feel like when I walk into a course, I very rarely try to go for my best score. I'm definitely working on trying to get um, work on shots that I'm wanting to learn. So it was a good week. It was a fun week for sure. How about you? Yeah, it was a good week for sure. I haven't played quite as much as I normally would um, during the summer, I've been trying to get in some morning rounds before work, and that's been fun. So enjoyed those. I, I feel my game feels like just a little off, especially distance forehand and putting. Um, backhand depends the day. So I, I think I really need to just get some grind some putts in the backyard or rather in my garage since my backyard really is an option right now. And uh, But I had a good week. I played a few rounds, morning rounds at Watson, and then we got a tournament on the 8th of august i think it is and we had ne- we have never played that course before so you and i got to go out um, and scout it and just check out the course and fun course some really fun holes some really cool holes and uh some that require a lot of um, care and then there's just some eh, gimmicky holes maybe or just kind of like strange holes and so it's kind of a it's kind of a odd assortment of of holes that make up the course but i think in general it's one that conservative play is important but i think especially just like really smart golf where you say these are the holes i'm going for birdie on these are the holes i'm going to try to get par on you know and there's a 360 foot hole on that course that i think my game plan is 280 foot upshots basically uh one to a landing zone and one towards the basket to try to avoid uh, OB on every single side of the green and there's just an arrow strip so it's I think it's gonna be a really fun course to play in a tournament but it's I don't know I'd like it as my home course because there's so much OB and there's so much potential to lose discs there yeah for sure if it was a home course there's definitely a few holes there that I think you and I would probably skip a there's good at least one that we would skip every time yeah because I don't want to lose my firebird yeah <laughs> unless I ended up with just like a ridiculous number of like loner discs or something I don't know yeah but yeah, it was a fun, fun week. I also got an ace last night, actually, 
David and I and his wife Megan were playing the little nine hole course by his house, Salt Wash, and I aced the last hole uh, on the second round that we played it. So, little resistor, forehand, perfect skip and smash the chains. We heard it but didn't see it, and then Megan was on the other side of the sidewalk, and so she was like, "She's like, did you guys just ace?" And I was like, "I think so, but I'm not sure." She's like, "Well, it's in the basket." I was like, "Oh, that's sweet." So. My first non-Berg ace. Yeah, it's a pretty sick ace. I mean, that's that whole the only way to really get the ace is on the skip shot. There, yeah, there's no way to get the disc far enough right while still getting to the basket. It's yeah. a fun hole. It's it's very technical. That that course in general is got a few easy like short holes and a few long kind of open holes, but it's got like four or five really technical holes that I think make it a little little. Uh, jewel it's like just a little um it, it forces you to work on things that a lot of other courses around here don't a lot of elevation change a lot of really specific landing points so um but yeah fun fun week overall good week i think my putt feels pretty off and so i'm just gonna this week probably just focus on putting as much as i can and then start to i think actually just start to try to get all the facets of my game at at least an average level because i'd say like my putting and forehand distance drives are all below average and my hyzer game is a little bit below average so i'd like to get everything at least on average which means i think just grinding on in field work for like hyzer distance and and uh, backhand high or sorry forehand distance and backhand hyzers and putting and then just once those are there try to actually play some rounds utilizing all those skills and see where I'm at because I think you develop all these different skills and then as you're working on one another one falls apart or falls away a little bit and then you focus on that one and something else and so it's hard to keep all those moving parts competent and confident but I want to kind of get there so that when it comes tournament because there's a lot of forehand hyzers and there's a lot of shots that I feel like oh there's a lot of up uphill or elevated baskets putting and so i feel like there's a lot of things that you really want to have your game together so i'm looking forward to it and overall good week that's awesome man you want to get into a pro tip let's do it we got a pro tip from the one and only hannah mcbeth hi everyone hannah mcbeth here and okay you said what's one thing that you wish you had known when you were first building your game approach shots they matter practice them yeah short and sweet but i appreciated it what do you think oh absolutely i think we found especially with when you're playing a little bit longer courses um i mean palisade's a perfect example and i think there's going to be some of those components with playing at aletha but when you're playing some of those longer courses if you're getting your upshots around the basket um, especially on those par fours or whatever it might be then you're having to work a lot less. I think we've talked about this before. It makes your putting game more simple. And the more that you are cashing those shorter putts, when you do step up to those longer putts, your confidence level is much higher. So the longer putts feel shorter because it's the game has been simplified for you. You're not having to work every single hole to get your putt to the basket. And I think just that alone gives you this mental freedom and clarity to kind of cruise through your round as a part as opposed to feeling this grind, like you're trying to grind out the entire round and work extremely hard. So, I mean, this is, yeah, it's huge. You always use the grind in this negative sense, and yet we <laughs> called the podcast the grind. 
No, I totally agree. I, I'd say just as an initial point, like the practicing up shots to me is harder for me to make time for than putting because putting is like pretty fast practice. Like you can get 10 putts in and the time you probably get one up, up shot if you include walking to your disc and picking it up. And so I do think sometimes upshot is both like doesn't feel very efficient with practice and it isn't terribly fun especially if you're just like throwing to a tree or throwing to some point or um but i think that what i've found is that powering down is sometimes a problem for people and i think whenever you need to do a little bit of a run-up in an open you know a par four or a par five you need to make a full power uh, second drive I think a lot of times I get really nervous about that because I want to make sure I get that plant foot right and and I realize it's because I don't practice it at all mm-hmm. like I don't practice uh, you know f- basically doing a field work to to have that fairway drive like from the fairway um, and so I do think that there is like a ton of truth to this and I think it's one also like even a course like Delta I missed in the second round, I hit like first available on hole 12, which is like when I expect a birdie. But it's nice knowing that I could, like, I didn't give myself like a great up shot, but it wasn't like too terribly hard to do. It's like 150 feet. And it was like, oh, I'm going to, like, I'm going to put it under the basket within 20 feet. Like, I'm going to make it easy on myself because I really, at this range, I really trust this forehand bird up shot for me. Um, but I do think that when you have confidence in those upshots, it actually takes a lot of pressure off your drives as well. Because if you're like, oh, well, I went in the rough or I went behind this tree or I didn't get that far down the fairway. I mean, you have to have an attitude adjustment, I think, for part of this. But I do think it is just like, okay, cool. Well, I'm just going to make my upshot, make the par and move on and not like, oh, gosh, now I'm probably going to bogey. You know, and I think that that difference in mentality based on the confidence of practicing and being competent upshots is huge. You know what's funny is I feel like I've casually thought about that, but I didn't really intentionally think about how that being confident in your upshots, how that can impact your drives. I definitely, for me, um, there was kind of a shift in my game as far as recognizing when I did throw a bad drive, I immediately would go, okay, now I have to make a good upshot. And so to get myself out of bad headspace, I'm like, I get to make a good upshot. Um, but yeah, the pressure that it takes off your drives when you know that you can from 200 feet out anywhere, you can get it within 30 feet of the basket. Um, when you know you can do that, uh, because you practice it over and over and over again, it takes a lot of stress off of your drives. And taking the stress off your drives and your putting, that's that's huge. I mean, that's the whole game plan right there. You're going from your, so that's kind of that like little missing piece or whatnot that you feel like that kind of pieces everything together in and around. So, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like the idea of like, those three things, just obviously you could break those into a million different elements, but if you think about putting drives and upshots, if those all are just doing at least decent, then you don't put pressure in any particular aspect of your game. You know, whether it's, hey, my putter feels bad, so I really need to get it within 15 feet, that puts a lot of pressure on your drive, or whether it's, hey, my upshot game is a mess, so I, if I don't hit this first gap, I'm definitely going to bogey. Um, I mean, I think it's huge, and I think re- reality is, practicing and we can talk about some of the practical ways to do it is is a challenge both to make the time because it's much more fun to bang a long putt or to make a long drive than it is to practice up shots but 
I think one way that I would suggest is play putter courses, play short courses, because and do some standstills there as um, as part of your routine, even if you like to move for any drive. Because I do think sometimes you won't have the opportunity to make a walk up or a step forward. Um, but that's one way I think has really helped me is playing salt wash as well as Westlake locally. It's like, oh, they're almost all under 200 feet or salt washes, like most of them are between, under 250 feet. Great. Now I get to practice like a bunch of upshots, whether they're wide open or whether they're technical, I feel like is helpful. Yeah, for sure. What other ways do you think would be make sense to practice upshots? Oh man, um, I I mean for me, like I just said, uh, in amidst your longer rounds, if you don't have a putter course, um, knowing that, uh, just developing that mental shift from going from I have to make a good drive to being upset if you make a bad drive to being frustrated that you have to make an upshot. But kind of changing that mental space for me was kind of a, that was honestly one of the biggest turning points for my game. I think across, that's when my consistency with my drives became became a lot better was when I changed that mental space. Looking back on that, I would not have recognized that. But that was around the time of when I just started, I would kind of be like, okay, I made a bad drive. Now I'm going to make a good upshot. And so just seeing the positives of getting the opportunity to learn another shot um, I think just that mental shift, because really in life is just changing the perspective on how we perceive something, because we, we like to look at things negatively or positively. And whether we like it or not, we're, we're creating those based off these perceived notions that we have. And I think oftentimes we don't realize that we can change our perspective and make it a positive thing in our life. And that for me in disc golf was a major positive perspective shift for me as far as improving my game and just my mental space overall playing with my friends and impacting my round in a positive way so i think just your perception on seeing upshots is fun um, an opportunity for you to grow your game i think just that mental approach is is huge with how you perceive upshots yeah i remember simon was talking to i think it's the guy from daily disc golf he's a dismania sponsored youtuber um disc golf daily i can't quite remember but um he he asked Simon, like, hey, what's the difference between me, like a thousand-ish rated guy, and you a 1050, 1040-ish rated guy? And Simon said, Simon says, <laughs> Simon said, I think the biggest thing is just that the top pros don't let a bad shot ruin their round, a bad drive ruin their round. They will get up and down from pretty much anywhere, uh, the majority of the time if they don't go B. So when they're playing in the woods, they're going to have, they're going to have a solution to almost in every shot and they're going to feel confident in it. And I think that that the best thing, like I love what you were saying, because the best thing to me is I think your body responds to that positivity and that like excitement about trying something new or trying to, you know, lay something that you've done a million times. And I do think for me, I, I don't, I, when I've given up a little bit on score as my primary goal in a practice round or a casual round, I do think it opens up this like, oh, I think I need to throw a high, uh, high overhand shot that rolls at the end, or I need to throw this like little low skipper shot. Um, you know, or I'm playing the percentages and I could go through this little gap straight and I feel confident doing that. But if I miss it, it's for sure a bogey or I could take the wide gap and leave myself a 35 footer. You know, I feel like 
when you can like add that element to the game and for a course you play a lot, it's an area, sometimes you end up somewhere you've never been before. And so it's, I mean, to me, you should look at it as like a novel experience that you get to do. And if your card mates allow and it's not a tournament round, take a few, try, try a few and see what works best for you. Yeah. The other one I would suggest in it. So two more I'd give as ways to practice your upshots. I'd say find out what your max jump pot putt distances to get to the basket to get to the pole don't doesn't have to even reach the chains just to get to the pole and then back up a few feet from that maybe 20 feet from that and just practice up shots forehand and backhand to your bag or to a basket and then take a few feet back until you have to make a big step or have to do a run-up and then you could probably do a run-up after that but when i've when i've done that even just wide open i feel like it's really showed me that there's certain areas that my game is weak in. Like I'll get to a certain point and I'll be kind of between discs or between like a standstill and a step or a stand, a step and a full uh, run up or whatever that is. And so I think it is good to just experience those, all those different ranges. And so you have some sense of when you need to make a transition, whether it's disc or for, you know, power or footwork or whatever else it is, but also you have an idea of what you need to practice. And so like, I know that at that like hundred foot mark, I'm typically have to be careful not to go long on the berg. Once I, because my jump putt rain, like 75 feet is where I feel confident, like getting the disc to the pole. And then a hundred feet is where I'm like, I don't want to go long with the berg um, or whatever the upshot is. And then I think I feel pretty good from like 120 to like 180. And then at 200, you start to get that point. You're like, Sometimes I feel like you got to overpower the disc to get to the hole. And so for me, those are the places that I probably should practice the most is that like 100 to 110 and then that like 180 to 200 spot because they're just kind of like in-betweens. And you can try all different lines as well. It is interesting that you talk about the in-betweens like that because there's definitely maybe like this 20 to 30 feet pockets throughout in the upshot game from your putting to your longer upshots to then your longer upshots that I feel like there are these gaps and like one of the, like when I think outside of you can get your uh, jump putt a little bit further than I can. I think typically after outside of 65 feet, I'm kind of backing off the little step putt. And I, I, from that 65 to hundred foot range, I, I, I mean, I call it the old girthy run is what I say. Cause Garrett girthy always uses that hyzer kind of with his putter to try to land it by the basket. And that's what I found to be super predictable. Um, and so I kind of, it's nice to build concepts like you're saying from a certain amount of feet as you walk out of what you're doing with your game, what you're going to go to. Obviously if it's windy, I'm probably not going to do that girthy run. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I'm going to have to go to something else, but, uh, having concepts that, you know, you can go to at different stages. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest benefits of doing those exercises to me was actually realizing that my jump putt was just a more consistent shot. I actually prefer to throw at the basket like 60 and out, but I realized that my jump putt was just so much more consistent in terms of getting me an easy putt. And so making that change, now I feel like I'm I'm much more consistent from that like 55 to 75 or 80 foot range, even 90 foot range, where before I was kind of like, a lot of times going 30 long because I just didn't have quite enough touch on the upshot or whatever that is. And then the last way I'd say, and this is, I think every pro would tell you to play putter rounds, 
but putt arounds really do allow you to play par fours on shorter holes. So you have maybe, let's say your max drive is a 300, 300 feet with your driver and you're playing a 300 foot hole. Well, if you play a putter round and you can get 200 feet with your putter, then you get to practice 100 foot upshot, assuming you're kind of accurate and got to that 100 foot point. And so I do think putter rounds open up um, your practice to kind of make your cor- the course your own. Um, Paul Macbeth talked to Christine Jennings um, one, one time I was listening to one of their YouTube videos or watching one of their YouTube videos. And he was talking about how even if you don't have a course that builds every skill and you feel like your home course actually is lacking in certain elements, you can make it your own and you can pick your own lines and make up your own mandos in order to teach yourself or work on other skills. And I think putter rounds do that. If you have a shorter course as your home course and you need to work on upshots, but realistically there aren't many opportunities unless you just shank a drive, then I think you can play a putter round, maybe even intentionally not throw your full shot but just pick a landing zone as if you're playing a par four, like, Hey, I want to land hundred feet up the fairway, but I want to land in this certain area so that I give myself a clean run up. And then I'm going to throw a 250 foot up shot. Um, so I can practice that run up or whatever. I do this occasionally. I need to do it more. I think when it's windy, it's a little bit hard for me to want to do putter rounds, even though I should just because I know I'm going to get beaten up pretty good by the wind. Um, and I think that with testing discs and stuff, I feel like, a lot of times I don't make the time, but I think whenever I do putter rounds, my game gets so much stronger. So maybe this week in the mornings, what I should do is putters only backhand. And then the only thing I can throw for long range shots would be forehands. And maybe I can improve my forehand and my backhand at the same time there. That's one thing with those putter rounds that I really never thought of, to be honest with you. I saw putter rounds as helpful as far as working with your control. Um, but I didn't think about as far as your upshots go. And, and one thing that I'm really trying to work on right now are my upshots with my Berg, both backhand and forehand. And uh, more, I mean, that's obviously going to give me more opportunities to do that. And so as much as I would, again, hate to uh, continue to take away from my scoring because it makes me feel so good when you get a good score, um, that's that's huge. I think uh, uh, working on more putter rounds would definitely be beneficial to our games. Yeah, for sure. I think that there's so many ways to practice. And like I was saying with the How's Your Disc Golf Week, I feel like there's so many facets of the disc golf game that you want to be building those skills. And so it's hard to round them all out at once. But I think putter rounds are a good way to at least focus on a few things that you sometimes miss otherwise. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and I thought it would be a fun topic, would be how do you get better at disc golf by watching disc golf? And what can you learn from the pros and maybe what should you not try to learn from the pros? <laughs> and we're not experts by any means, but I thought it'd be fun to talk about. Yeah. I think in general, for me, is just seeing different shots. Uh, seeing, I, I love when the announcers or um, when they actually put up the disc that they're using um, on the screen, whether it's Jomez or whether it's the Disc Golf Network. It's kind of more shout out to Ian Anderson of Central Coast. He, in general, knows like every player's bag pretty well. He doesn't get them all right, but he gets like them ninety percent right as they're doing the run up, and it's an incredible skill for the live. <laughs> I mean, it's cool. Joe has started doing it as well. Uh, it makes it really interesting to watch. But to do it live is is wild. It's impressive. 
but it makes it more enjoyable for the listener, especially for the amateur as we're trying to build our games, trying to build concepts of, okay, what did they use to do that shot? Because there are a lot of shots that, I mean, Simon Lazat and a lot of those guys do that I don't know if I'll ever be able to do it, but it's also fun to begin to build those concepts in your head of, okay, this is what the disc is designed to do, and this is how he got the disc to do that, um, whether it's been beat in or whatever it might be. Um, but I feel like it really helps build concepts in your brain as you're beginning to understand. Because I think early on for me, so I had a general concept of overstable and understable as I was beginning to learn the game, thanks to Josiah. But uh, it really, from there, I didn't really know what I could do with the discs. Um, watching pros being able to um, crush these massive turnovers to where you're getting it to push to the right and then it, because it's so overstable, it pulls back and finishes to the left. Um, those different shots, being able to understand what you can do with the disc was definitely eye-opening for me and what kind of made me begin to appreciate more and more watching disc golf, a lot of the pros. I remember the first time coming over to Josiah's house and he was watching pro disc golf. I kind of chuckled because it was like, I'm never going to get in as deep as, as, as Josiah. What and a nerd. Look at, <laughs> look at me now. <laughs> yeah, in this same living room that you were um, judging me for watching disc golf, pro disc golf on my TV, yep. now we're recording a podcast yep. about disc golf. <laughs> and I think e- Eagle McMahon was the first one that stood out to me. I think he was in that tournament and he was kind of young at the time. And uh, I uh, made some comments of this guy looks like he, or pretty good. I don't remember what I said, uh, but I think he was just kind of coming into his own as a player at that time. So, yeah, I I totally love the concept that you mentioned of just what you can do with the disc or what they can do with the disc and how the different discs fly and how you can use different releases with different stabilities or speeds to get different shots i think that's huge i think that's probably one of the biggest things i think the other thing is just decision making like whether it's a layup on a putt or it's you know there's different opportunities on the course there's you know a left gap and a right gap you can do the backhand forehand turnover etc and just how different players approach it and how sometimes hey it works well for pretty much everybody um or the best players can make the whole fit their game. And there's other times where no, the best players are forced to throw a specific shot, but on the whole. And so no, they, they all throw that shot and some of them are naturally good at it. It's part of the game regularly um, or part of the game they lean on. And there's some players that it's like, no, it's not a big part of their game. Um, I'm thinking we just watched um, some of the preserve and there's a four obvious forehand hole. Uh, that's just like the a basic, flat to hyzer forehand i feel like you'd do well on it. it's like 320 or 330 or something like that and conrad's throwing a backhand and most of the time i think it works for him it didn't work the, the final round uh he ended up having an upshot making a par but it is this interesting thing where three people on the card throw the shot that's required and i think one person was parked and the other people had uh ended up par um but it just shows you i think how to evaluate a, a hole given your own skill set. And you can see players you emulate based on your skills and their skills and how they approach it. And you can also see players that have a different skill set that you'd like to build, you know. So for me, I'm backhand dominant. So it's easy to see Conrad approach a, a hole that requires a forehand and throw a backhand and think, oh, see, I could do that. But also you could see somebody just pitch up an easy flat to hyzer forehand and realize, 
or I could also try to build this other part of my game that's a weakness. You know, it's just, I feel like it's fun to kind of see the pros, evaluate, analyze a whole, and then match the whole to their game and percentages and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think another variable with watching the pros is I've seen them make mistakes and how they approach their mistakes. Because I think, again, I think one of the major things that separates, I think you were talking about Lazat, one of the major things that separates um, the great pros or pros in general from amateurs is as an amateur, we typically on a regular basis, it's easy to get frustrated and allow the bad mistakes to impact our rounds. And it just continues to drag on the rest of the round. While a pro, they'll make a mistake. Lazat's one of the best at just laughing it off and moving on. Um, but being able to recognize that disc golf is a game of mistakes and figuring out how to best make up for those mistakes and not letting those get in your head. Um, but seeing how the pros approach those mistakes has been huge for me um, in my game. And I think uh, it's impacted me more than I realize. Um, and it's obviously something I'm still working on, uh, something that we can always still work on. But uh, um, yeah, I think it's just kind of fun and sobering as an amateur to recognize pros make mistakes. Uh, it's okay for me as an amateur player playing a casual round with my friends <laughs> to make a few mistakes. That's just part of the game and part yeah. of the fun and just have fun with that. Yeah, that's good. I feel like it's so often that we we just get in our own heads about our own game and like you're saying, like you're going to throw a tantrum. I know you don't normally do it now, but somebody may have in the past, may do it in the future, throw a tantrum over like a mistake in a casual round or a tournament. And you're like, I'm playing a B tier in an amateur field. And I'm more upset with it about this than the person who's made it their career and livelihood. Maybe there's something wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. I think that the one thing I'd say that I wouldn't, I'd say that there's like a balance in emulating is disc selection. Mm -hmm. I think that typically you're better off rather than picking the disc that a pro would use for the shot, picking a disc that's a few ticks less stable a lot of times, depending on the length of the hole, et cetera, or a few ticks slower uh, in general is going to be, I think a more approachable way to, to, um, play the hole but there are certain holes where a throws a, th a throw is going to pull a putter <laughs> a pro is going to throw a putter and you really need to throw a driver and so just i think there is a certain degree to which you know understanding that the pro the pros have more power and so their disc selections can be different and also they play more disc golf than you so their discs are going to typically be more worked in and so a fresh champ t-bird compared to the T-Bird that somebody's throwing who's had it in their bag for two years and has been playing a tournament every weekend plus practice rounds, those are going to be very different discs. So when I just got back into disc golf, I both hadn't thrown a lot recently and then I moved up 4,500 feet in elevation and I was just like, you know what? I need, I have lost a lot of drivers I'm just going to get a fresh champ T-Bird and a fresh champ Thunderbird and use those as my primary drivers because that's what the pros use. And I, you know, the pros like to throw them on hyzer flips. I like hyzer flip game. And so both discs, I like tried to smash. This is when I was throwing like 250 because I was just getting back into disc golf and 
not that not the 250 is short for everybody but for me i had thrown 350 before but then you don't play but like once every six months or once every three months and distance falls apart and i <laughs> tried to hyzer flip these like fresh champ t-bird fresh champ thunderbird and they would fly like 110 feet and they would just spike, like just drop out of the sky and spike hyzer into the ground <laughs> and i just realized this is not for me these aren't even utility of this for me these have no utility right now because my game cannot accept this fresh champ t-bird fresh champ thunderbird sort of thing and so i think there is this level of sing with the pros throw and sometimes it makes sense to emulate that maybe you should bag three or four destroyers maybe you should bag that overstable firebird david certainly does and it does well for him then there's other times you got to say you know what a pro would probably throw an overstable disc on the shot but I just don't have the power for that. And I'm going to have a more consistent shot throwing something neutral or even understable and flipping it up. So I do think there is, I'd say you can emulate the pros throw, but I'd say you're probably better off typically going slower and less stable in general in terms of building your bag. Yeah, for sure. I absolutely agree. And that's one thing that I feel like I really didn't have any general concept um, as I was beginning to uh, build my bag early on because I think we were just kind of grabbing whatever discs we can to have discs and to try to learn Whatever things. was in the U-spin that I, had like a high speed number. Yep, and I remember seeing like, oh, I think I have that disc in my bag. I think I... So um, being able to throw a bunch of different discs and seeing what the pros are throwing and how it might adjust to your game as you're continuing to build your game whether it is with the forehand or whether it is with the backhand i totally agree and i think like watching megan throw that servo and relay after relying on like t-bird three and wraith yes and just seeing how much more distance she's getting and consistency yeah she's torquing over them occasionally and she was doing it more but she's starting to get like full flights out of discs where they pop up and move a little right and fade and so there is this degree to which just like seeing how a disc flies for you and then trying a few less stable or more stable depending or slower or faster just to get a sense of like what works for you but also what discs can do on different angles. And you know, tying that back into the pros game, I think watching a lot of different pros play, you'll sometimes see, oh, this pro is actually throwing a less stable disc on a hyzer to get it to glide out. And so I feel like that is one thing you got to be cautious about it, but I think you want to kind of emulate, but also experiment with what works for you and realize that the pro level discs are a typically going to be more fast and more overstable than you need faster and more overstable than you need, but they may make still make sense in your bag for some shots and um, that they're also often going to have a lot of wear to them. And so they're going to fly a little differently than a fresh one out of the box. For sure. Well, I feel like we covered that pretty well. Anything else on watching the pros play? No, I think, I mean, in general, I just encourage, I, it's funny because it's, again, going back, like I kind of joked around about like, I'm surprised that Josiah is so into it that he's spending all of his time because I spend so much time watching baseball and like, <laughs> I think at the time I just didn't see, like personally see disc golf as like that, that enjoyable of a thing to watch. I was seeing it as a thing, kind of a hobby on the side. And now I find so much joy in watching what these guys can do, like watching players like Lazat, Macbeth, um, Heimberg, and I mean, you name it. The list goes on and on. It's just fun and encouraging, and 
exciting to watch these guys and what they're doing. And so, yeah. And I feel like as you work on your own game and as you learn more about disc golf, it gets more enjoyable to watch because you can see more. I feel like for you watching baseball, you have like a hundred more things going on in your head than me watching baseball. I would be like, Oh, the pitcher threw like seven pitches and two were fouled off and there was one strike and he, I don't know, hit it in field and went out. And you're thinking, oh, it's interesting that they throw that, had that pitch selection or, hey, it's interesting that they're going to, are they going to switch a pitcher now or whatever those things are. I'm making stuff up because I'm not, you know, the guy for it, you know, but there is this, when you can get the different layers, I feel like it it makes it much more interesting. And I think, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you're spot on as far as I, I didn't realize. That's why I think I enjoy watching disc golf so much more now. It's because I enjoy those different variables in, uh, in disc golf because I have a, I have a lot more of an understanding of the game now than I did when we first started playing. I think because of that, you find a lot more joy in watching the game and what these guys are doing. Yeah, for sure. And we're st- still probably only the tip of the iceberg there. But I do think in general, live disc golf is great because you can put it on in the background and then just like when you want to pay attention, pay attention. But I love post-produce for a lot of things you said where you really do get to focus on that, what that player, how those four players are, are approaching the course, approaching the shots. You get a lot of times more info on the disc selection and that sort of thing. So it's great we have so many options to listen. Yeah, for sure. Well, you want to get into a disc review? Let's do it. Time for the What Was That Disc Review? This week, we have the Discraft Heat, which is a nine-speed, six-glide, negative three-turn, and one-fade fairway control driver. You make your pick. Jonathan Berger, one of our listeners, was kind enough to send us a bunch of heats to check out, and we really appreciate that. We have awesome listeners, and it's fun to have a listener-supported disc review. What did you think about the Heat, David? Dude, it was pretty fun. Um, I didn't realize it was a six-glide. And I feel affirmed because I felt like it had a lot of glide to it. Um, so that definitely lines up. For some reason, I thought it was a five glide on the speed. But I feel like it almost made me, it was just affirming for me in the sense I feel like I'm getting, am I beginning to have some solid understanding <laughs> of what discs do and am I throwing better? Is the but, disc doing what it was designed to do when to I do. throw it occasionally? Yeah. Um, I liked it overall. Um, it's a fun disc. Um, uh, probably my favorite throw with it, Josiah was... He handed me one of them and said, hey, try a hyzer flip with this one that was more beat in. Yeah, so this is on a 350-foot hole that has trees lining the right-hand side and the basket's on that right-hand side. So you can't throw straight at it, really. You need to either throw some kind of turnover or a forehand if you're right-handed. Yeah, and I I got it. I'm not the best at hyzer flips because I'm still really just learning the hyzer flip. And I got it to Heiser flip up for me and cruise straight to the basket and parked underneath the yeah. basket. I was like, hey, David, throw, try throwing a late turning Heiser flip on this so, hole. And he he put it under under the basket like exactly that, like flip up, turn, and then just like basically finish straight at the, under the basket. It so, was annoyingly good. So just I actually volunteered to caddy for me now at the next turn. <laughs> hey, David, I think you should ace this one. <laughs> okay. But uh, it's a fun disc. I mean, you can really get it to start turning. Definitely that understability. Uh, uh, it's an understable disc. Um, put it on an Anheuser, and it can keep turning for you with a little bit of a fade at the end, which is nice. Uh, yeah, it kind of reminded me a bit of my I bag of Essence. It reminded me a bit of the Essence with a little less glide. 
Um, and I think a little more turn. I actually don't even remember what the, the... The Heat has less glide and more turn than the Essence, you think? Has The Heat has more glide. More glide, okay, yeah. I would say than the Essence, yeah. And probably a little bit more turn. Okay. But uh, yeah, I liked it. And I think, to be honest with you, it's probably one of the discs... I, I haven't been very consistent with getting discs to Heiser Flip. And it's a disc that I could see myself messing with with trying with the Heiser Flip, so... Yeah, I could totally see it in that Essence range. I liked it as well. I think it's got that, like, I like, really like that nine-speed rim. It feels good, not too not too wide. It's got, like, this very interesting um, microbead to it. I don't know if you can see that, David, at the very end here. Yeah, the, I don't think I noticed that when I saw it. Yeah, you don't feel it in the hand at all, but it is interesting. Otherwise, it's got, like, a very um, straight... Uh, the underside of the rim is a very straight profile, maybe even slightly convex instead of concave. And I think that makes it feel really good in the hand to me. And uh, the ones we have are not too domey, just like mild dome. We had a Z, a crystal sparkle ledge stone heat, and a Haley King metallic Z heat. And so we had quite a bit to try because we also had an ESP on hand. And so we got to try all the plastics. What do you think of them, David? You know what? I think it was the was it the ESP or I can't remember which one you threw on hole let's see three. Yep. And you Josiah definitely had an ace run and and that hole it was the crystal crystal sparkle. Crystal sparkle. Um that hole is a massive dog leg left. Yep. It's definitely backhand, kind of hyzer, glidey, it's downhill a little bit. And so for me, I'm always thinking overstable. I want to make sure that it's going to fight left and get over there. And when it is uh, right now, everything's kind of overgrown, so there's no ground play. Yeah. When when it's when it's cut clean, you can definitely get a skip shot to the yeah. basket. Yep. But what was awesome to see is Josiah used uh, one of these heats, and he still got it on that hyzer, and it had a glide to it that glided straight to the basket. And I've never seen that with any of my oversable discs. And that was kind of an eye-opening thing for me as far as being able to put those undersable discs on a hyzer and get that predictability and glide to get to the basket in a situation like that. And so, yeah. yeah. I really liked it. I feel like they were predictably understable. Yeah. Not like wildly understable, but not so neutral that you didn't know whether it'd flip up or not. I also really, that hyzer line on, is it, six up six, the hill yeah. oh yeah you, i forgot about those shots yeah, those too. those are this it was like it's a, kind of almost a spike hyzer but the problem with the overstable disc on the spike hyzer it's up on top of it's like this very tight line and it's up on top of a mound and the overstable disc a lot of times will not get all the way up there or if they do you'll get kind of a big skip yep and i the first time we played this i put two heats within like 20 feet total like one was at 12 feet one was at eight feet and it is this just like it's a hyzer and then it doesn't it stands up a tiny bit during the hyzer and then it just kind of glides that hyzer line to finish yep. out so i liked it i thought it's a very versatile disc because of that predictable understability that glide and then i think it has enough little bit of fade at the end i think that tiny tiny microbead may have something to do with it that it will if you have it on an ante, it will pan to flat typically if you don't just, you know, if you give it enough height. Um, or if you want to get like a tiny bit of 
um, reliable hyzer finish, it, it will do that. So I really liked it. I like the speed. I, it's an interesting disc for me, and we can talk about it in the rating because I don't know if I have anything quite in this slot right now. My free tail, I'd say, is a bit less stable, at least the one I bag. And I, I really enjoyed it. I thought I was getting really good distance with it uh, when I was trying to get distance for a nine speed. I mean, you threw it out to 350 on that shot. And I think that was like about as good as I did as well as around that 350 range, which for me is, is great. I, I, I think I could get it further, but I was getting it 350 with, you know, like on a, like a short T pad and a, pre- but a predictable line and finish. So I was a big fan. I think the glide is real. I think nine speed rim definitely there. I think the negative three is real. I would say the, the Haley King to me and the crystal sparkle were probably more like that negative two. Um, there's, I'd say that the Haley King was probably the most stable. That's what Jonathan mentioned as well. And I agree with that. Then the crystal sparkle, then the Z, then the ESP in terms of most to least stable. I think my favorite was honestly the, probably the, the stock Z or the crystal sparkle. What about you? I honestly, I probably would go with the ESP just because it's, I enjoyed the Heiser flip. I think yep. that's the one I had the most success with. Yep. Um, yeah. And I, again, I like the glide that they're putting out. So. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a fun disc for sure. I totally get why a lot of the pros use it as their roller slash like standstill distance sort of disc. It seems like a lot of the Discraft pros end up bagging this or the Avenger SS. And to me, this is this is a great disc. I didn't necessarily have like, I'd heard good things, but I didn't necessarily think I would just find a groove with it immediately. And I definitely did. I actually tried some rollers with this and I still, oh, yeah. I still haven't got the concept of the roller in my in my head enough to actually find success. It, I think it's pretty tough at the elevation we live at. And I think you have to throw a really, w- was it, was it ending up too far? Like it wouldn't actually flip all the way up to the roller. Yep. Yeah. I think you have to, you have to really lean back. I'm showing David <laughs> to all our listeners. We, I apologize, but you have to really lean back and I think you have to really torque it and finish down with your arm in order to get it at our elevation and arm speed to get a consistent roller. I like an even more understable disc sometimes for a roller uh, than this because I can throw it a little bit flatter and get it to move all the way over. Um, but it's really like if you've, you've thrown a roller before, you just need to do it more, yeah. <laughs> more worse, more better, yeah. <laughs> worser. Anyway, you want to get into a rating? Let's do it. All right, our rating system. David and I will each score the disc one to five. Some are scores to ten. One. This is not that great of a disc. Two. It's an okay disc, but there's better options out there. Three. It's a good disc, but it doesn't stand out. Four is it's fantastic, but it's not going to make my bag. And five is it's going to the bag. So, David, what's your review? What's your rating? Let's see. I feel like for my style of play, I'm going to. I, I'm right in that 3.5 range, but I kind of want to give it a four in the sense that I'm really learning the benefits of understable discs, especially Let's with be the honest, backhand. Before that Heiser flip that ended up under the basket, would it have been a three to 3.5? It probably would have been a three. And now before it's a 3.5 to yes, four. <laughs> because I think that concept all of a sudden went from being in my head to actually seeing it happen. It was sick. And so <laughs> I'm beginning to understand and learn the value more of the understable disc. And I, again, I now I already have the essence in my bag. And we've talked before, once I commit to a disc, it's really hard for me to walk away from a disc. And I think there is a lot of overlap here, yep. for sure. And 
the one thing that I really do like about this over the essence is the glide factor. Yeah. I think especially as an amateur, um, get that glide and knowing that you can get, get a little bit more on it. And I definitely think I could probably put this 15 to 20 feet further on average. Yeah. More than my essence. Yeah. I, I buy that. Um, and so it makes me want to consider it, but I definitely am. I'm still in that learning stage with my essence. And so I can't really just jump ship there. Yeah. No, it does, to me, it doesn't make sense to move discs before you really even had enough time to explore the disc. Yeah. I. Uh, so you're giving it a, um, I think I'm going to go 3.5 for now. Yeah, that's totally fair. It's a great disc. I would, I'm going to give it a four point five. I don't know. I'm really tempted by this one. I'm going to give it a four, but to be continued because I really liked it. I especially liked it on Heisers, which is a strange thing it, for a negative three disc. It was frustrating how good you were throwing it. And maybe because it is similar to a lot of the discs you throw. Yeah. But the, there were three specific shots. I was just like, how? How? I want to be able to do that. Well, your Heiser flip that I told you to throw, I was like, that was what I was trying to yeah. do the last two shots. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, I'm going to give it a four. But to be continued, I think I'm going to probably... All right, I'm going to be wishy-washy. I'm going to give it a 4.5. Okay. I think I'm going to mess with it some more. Okay. I can't commit to it because I have so many discs in this category that I've tried and had like initial success with and then kind of like stop bagging it. But I think it's a hole in my bag. I would right now, I would probably either throw a Crave or a Freetail. The Crave is slower and a little bit more stable. The Freetail is faster and a little less stable. And so the sometimes I just don't need that shot. But the... I don't think that I could throw those hyzers with the Crave and have it have the same flight and the free tail I wouldn't trust. So it's very tempting. And Jonathan, thank you for sending these in because you've just added more complexity to my bag, but I'm very tempted. I, I think especially the Z, I think I'm going to mess with some more, put it in the bag for a little while, see if it makes sense. Uh, but John, one thing Jonathan mentioned was that, hey, you can throw it as hard as you want or as soft as you want. And I think that's one thing that I really like is that I could throw a smooth straight shot or I could try to rip it over on an Anheuser or I could throw it on a Heiser smoothly. And it just seems like a versatile disc, especially at our elevation and my arm speed. So it's tempting. So I'll give it a 4.5. That'll bump it up to an 8 out of 10. So a great score for a great disc. And once again, thank you to Jonathan for sending the disc. If you want to order some, you can order from 1010discs.com. Use the promo code thegrind 5 to get 5% off your first order. David, that's the majority of our episode. But disc golf is supposed to be fun. So just for fun, we're going to finish out our build your own perfect disc golfer. We've had a lot of different categories. The last two we have are scramble shots and clutch factor. So pro, whoever you want, MPO, MPO, FPO, who would you pick in terms of getting that scramble shot skill for our pro disc golfer? I feel like scramble shots is one of those really tough ones to... Ah, man. You know, I think I might go with um, uh, what, uh, Nico LaCastro. Oh, I, I like that. He, I feel like he's somebody that I've seen make some like pretty pretty great uh, scramble shots. Um, to be honest with you, scramble shots in general aren't ones that have stood out to me in tournaments, and so I can't really pinpoint certain pros. Uh, but he's somebody that I feel like can really come up with yep. some of those shots. No, through, I totally especially agree. Especially through the trees. Forehand, Anheuser game, rollers. Yeah, I totally buy that. I'm going to go Ricky Waisaki. I've got him for circle two putting, but I think he 
just seems to always find a way to get to the basket for many plays in the woods, in a strange lie, weird footing. I think his forehand and backhand scramble shots are up there for sure. But there's a lot of good ones. I think about uh, Joel Freeman with his thumber rollers and all this sort of stuff. There's just a ton. There's a ton of great pros out there. All right, how about Clutch Factor? Oh, Clutch. I've, I've used Macbeth, too, I think, on two already, so I can't really do that. I mean, um, you I'm, can do however many. I'm going with Dickerson. Oh, I think that was going to be mine. I think Dickerson's incredible in the Clutch. Um, there's been multiple turns I've seen, just whether he's holding on or just finishing strong at the end in order to come through and sneak a win. And yeah, Dickerson's fantastic. Yeah, I was actually going to say Dickerson because I thought you were going to go Macbeth. Um, this is tough. I'm going to have to come up with somebody different now. I mean, I think Macbeth obviously is is the right choice, but I have used Macbeth a lot as well. I mean, if you could just have your own perfect disc golfer, Macbeth's up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think Macbeth, when he's playing well, is is pretty much there. Yeah. You give him Eagle's forehand and we're all in trouble. <laughs> I, I guess I'm just going to go Macbeth. I can't help it. I've used Macbeth like three times, but you took Dickerson from me. So I'll take Macbeth. You know, it's all just a dream and made up, but uh, you can't go wrong with any of these, either of these. And that's our episode this week. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure that you follow us on Instagram. We'll be giving away some heats at thegrind.dg on Instagram. And until next time, whether it's coffee or disc golf, don't forget to enjoy the grind. <laughs> <laughs>